NASA has been observing the Earth from space for several decades and seeing some astounding changes. It's real, it's us, but we still have choices about how bad we let it get. Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is a new season of Gravity Assist. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA in making these fabulous missions happen. here with Dr. Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin is a NASA climatologist, climate modeler, director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York, and he's also a co-founder of the award-winning climate science blog, Real Climate. But since February 2021, Gavin was named the acting senior advisor on climate to the NASA administrator. Welcome, Gavin, to Gravity Assist. Thank you very much for having me. So how would you describe the difference between climate and weather? So people have come up with all sorts of great analogies to explain this difference. Um, one of the ones that I like the best uh, is, is thinking about your wardrobe, right? So uh, what you have available to wear any morning, it, you know, it, it, there's a lot of different things that you could, you could put on. Um, and, uh, and that kind of sets the choices that could happen in that day. Uh, but what you actually put on is a unique outfit, right? It, it's not necessarily going to be repeated, uh, except kind of during the pandemic when it's repeated every day. Um, but uh, you know, you have a you have a a, a, a change uh, that that's available, but but you're limited, right? You can't just do anything. And then sometimes somebody can come along and buy you a new bunch of shirts, and now that's that's closet change. Right and uh, and your uh, and your choices then change and your and your choices for what you're going to wear in any one day uh, can also change because you know things in your closet have changed. Our planet has been through a lot of different climate changes in its history. Right. How do you study these more ancient periods? You know, like ice ages. We're continually searching the geological record, which, which consists of things like the ice core records and ocean sediment records and, and rock records and pollen records and uh, cave records and all, all sorts of very inventive ways to get a sense of what's happened in the past. And we're looking for examples for where we have a potential mechanism for why climate changed. And then we have examples of, of how climate changed. And then we try and piece these things together such that, you know, that we can ask that question, you know, does that cause, now, which could be a, a massive asteroid, it could be wobbles in the Earth's orbit, it could be massive volcanism, it could be a shift in the continents. Uh, do, do any of these causes lead you to see the... Uh, changes that we've recorded in these other records. Um, and where we can do that, we gain both a deeper understanding of the things that cause climate change, but also more credibility in our ability to understand the things that cause climate change. Um, and so, uh, so we, use, we use those changes in the past to evaluate the models that we're building for today um, and to see whether uh, they're, they're in the right ballpark. And, and and they, they do pretty well. So the phase of climate change that we're in right now, why is that so different than the past? Why is something that's happening now so special? Um, and, it, and it's because we're special. 
Um, uh, we're, not, we're not the first species to have altered the composition of the atmosphere. I think that laurel goes to, uh, uh, to cyanobacteria um, some two billion years ago when, uh, when they started producing massive amounts of oxygen. Um, uh, but, uh, but right now, uh, we are making you know, geological scale changes to the atmosphere. We've increased the carbon dioxide concentrations by about 50%. We've more than doubled the methane concentrations. Uh, levels of water vapor are increasing at about 7% per degree of warming. We've had uh, more than a degree Celsius of warming since the 19th century. Uh, and we're seeing you know, geologically significant uh, shifts in, in the amount of glacial ice, in the amount of uh, sea level, in the amount of, uh, you know, temperature and, and the ecosystem responses uh, to those things. And we can go back uh, and, you know, and a lot of times, you know, you're seeing something that that is kind of unique in a few hundred years, maybe unique in a few thousand years. There are some places where we can go now, like on Baffin Island um, in the Canadian archipelago, where we are seeing uh, changes in, in the ice caps there uh, that are revealing that these ice caps are melting uh, and they're revealing surfaces that have not been exposed to the air perhaps for 125,000 years, right? So, so we're, we're pushing the system in ways that are you know, quantitatively large compared to the history of the planet. Um, and, and that... that continues to blow me away but things are things are shifting uh so how how do we know why that's changing uh that's a great question um and and as you mentioned you know over the history of the planet, lots of things have caused climate to change. Volcanoes, variations in the sun, the walls of the Earth's orbit, uh, you know, changes in outgassing, uh, the, sh the shape of the continents, where the continents are, the ocean circulation itself. All of those things have caused things to change. Um, but we can, we can look and see what's happened over the last 150 years. And we haven't had any big volcanoes. You know, we've had a couple, uh, but we haven't had massive, massive volcanoes. We haven't had an asteroid. We haven't had a big shift in the continents. They're, they're moving very slowly. The Earth's orbit has not wobbled, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in some uh, anomalous way. But what has happened is we've increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We've chopped down a whole bunch of forests. We've increased the amount of air pollution. We've irrigated large amounts of land. And we can put all of those things in and ask the question, uh, if... Only the natural things had happened. If only the volcanoes and the sun and the, and the orbital wobbles, if only they had changed, where would we end up? Where would we have ended up? And then you can say, well, if only the things that we've done had changed, where would we have ended up? And then what happens when you put all of those things together? And it turns out they kind of add up pretty linearly. And if you just look at the natural forced changes, you don't end up with very much change over the last 150 years. Uh, but when you put in the human cause uh, of, of change, then it lines up um, with what we see, and not just in the surface temperature, but also in the changes of heat in the ocean, the changes in Arctic sea ice, the changes in the stratosphere, the changes in the tropics, the changes at the poles, um, uh, the changes on land versus on ocean, all of those things fit, right? And the fingerprint that we see in all of those records, in all of those changes, uh, is, is, is our fingerprint. It's, it's not 
anybody else's. It's not the sun. It's not the volcanoes. It's us. Well, you know, there's all kinds of natural things, as you point out, that happen year after year after year, like hurricanes or wildfires. But uh, climate change is exasperating those. And, and how does that do that? Going back to our, our closet um, uh, analogy, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like somebody is, is, is throwing out all the cold weather gear and, and just kind of stocking your closet with, with shorts and T-shirts. And uh, things, things, are, things are changing. And, and, you know, not every day are you going to be able to pick out exactly what's going to happen. But, uh, but we're seeing, uh, particularly with things like uh, uh, hurricane intensity, uh, rainfall intensity, drought intensity, uh, we're seeing these be juiced uh, by the changes in temperature. So uh, increasing surface temperatures in the ocean uh, leads to uh, the possibility for more intense hurricanes. And so we've seen uh, an increase in the, in the more intense hurricanes uh, over, over the last 50 years. Um, we've seen the heat waves are more intense and more uh, and more frequent uh, across a whole part of the uh, the northern hemisphere. Uh, we're seeing that when it rains, it rains more intensely, um, and we're seeing that not just as as functions of, of the big storms, but but more generally. Uh, and again, that's something that's due to the warmer sea surface temperatures. I mean, some good news: we're, we're seeing less uh, cold weather outbreaks, uh, despite you know what happened in in Texas. Uh, this year, uh, we are actually seeing less of those uh, over time. And when they come, they're less cold. Uh, so, you know, that's moderately good news. We're seeing extended uh, growing seasons, also moderately good news, unless, you know, you care about kudzu and pine bark beetles and invasive species and those kinds of things. Um, but we, we, yeah, I mean, the, the changes that have happened so far with climate are now evident in a whole suite of new uh, variables, a whole suite of new extremes. Well, as you say, we see those things because we can measure them here on Earth, but NASA has a really unique perspective, and that is from uh, looking at it from space and getting global ideas as to what's going on. So what are some of the measurements, the important measurements that NASA's Earth Science Program is making that gives us an idea of what's happening in the climate change area. We have uh, the trends in uh, the, the radiation at the top of the atmosphere from, from the series uh, measurements. We have the trends in gravity from the GRACE satellites and the GRACE follow-on satellites. Uh, we have uh, sea level rise from a whole series of laser altimeters, uh, of which we've just launched the, uh, you know, I think the fifth in the series. Um, we have uh, records of uh, Arctic sea ice uh, going back from 1979 uh, onwards, where we can see very clearly how things have been have been changing. Uh, we can see uh, the changes in ice itself from from visual uh, 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 records uh, from from Landsat, for instance. You know, we can see you know the the the. Uh, the decline in mountain glaciers in Alaska and in the Himalayas and in the Rockies and in the Andes and in the Alps and on Kilimanjaro and in Papua New Guinea and all of the places where we have ice on the planet, we're seeing changes uh, that are consistent with uh, the, temp the changes in, in, in temperature over this, over this time period. You know, one of the satellites I really like is ISAT. And as you mentioned, uh, it uses lasers that then allow us to determine height, laser altimetry. 
How does that really work? Magic. <laughs> How does that work? Um, uh, so it works because uh, the, the satellite uh, has, a, has a laser and, it, and we know the satellite's position very, very accurately. Um, it sends down a laser to the surface and then it bounces back up. And how quickly it bounces back up is a measure of how far it's traveled. And uh, how far it's traveled tells you how high the surface is. And, and the precision of these measurements uh, allow us to, uh, at, at the global scale, you know, see uh, clearly uh, changes in the global sea level of, of a few millimeters per year. Um, and and allow us to see you know uh, changes in elevation on on the on the ice sheets themselves of you know uh, a few meters uh, per year. It's I mean it's really very impressive. Yeah, a remarkable set of measurements indeed. So NASA just announced that we're developing a new set of missions. Uh, we call them the Earth System Observatory. What are they all about, and what will they measure? So uh, this is a suite of uh, new missions uh, that are partially to continue the series of measurements that we've been making over the last few decades, but also to measure important new things uh, that we haven't been able to capture uh, before. You know, one, one of those new things um, is really fine-grained information about aerosols. So particles that are in the atmosphere, they're made up of lots of different things, you know, dust and sea salt and, and sulfur dioxide and, and sulfate particles and soot and pollen and all sorts of different things. Um, uh, but really getting an idea of, of where those aerosols are, when it's a very confused and complicated picture. We haven't had that global view of that uh, in, in enough detail uh, up until now. Uh, so that's going to be a big part of uh, one of the new uh, one of the new missions. Um, we're uh, continuing to uh, build on these, these gravity measurements uh, so that uh, we can continue to track uh, not just where the ice and Greenland and Antarctica is going, but also changes in groundwater um, and changes in uh, other kinds of, uh, of, of water storage on, uh, on land, uh, because that turns out to be really important um, as well. Uh, we have uh, one of these missions is to look at uh, vertical land movement, which is so important for understanding how changes in global sea level are going to impact uh, regionally um, uh, in, in any particular uh, location. So in the monitoring that we do, are there measurements that we can make or are making that would help people understand the elevation of water and, and threatening uh, of the ocean uh, fronts that we have here in, in the world? Yes and no. So uh, measurements only tell us what's going on right now. And, and, and in order to prepare for what might happen in the future, you need models. Uh, but we are making we are making the measurements that that feed into those forecast models. Uh, we're looking at the satellite altimeter data uh, that's giving us regional sea level, uh, you know, very close to the shore. We're we're looking at uh, the uh, the INSAR data and the NISAR data that's, that's going to be upcoming. Uh, that's going to tell us more about uh, vertical land movement, which is which is the other part of uh, risks associated with relative sea level change. Um, so yes, and uh, you know we are making those measurements, uh, but they need to be fed into the analysis, they need to be fed into the modeling uh, so that we can project things uh, going forward uh, that we don't yet have observations for. Well, to understand this concept of altitude of land, isn't it true that as, as ice or snow in mountain peaks 
then wither away, the land becomes more buoyant and moves up. And so you have to not only factor in the, the change in ocean height, but the change in, in mass that is occurring on the land. Yes, you do. And in fact, it's even more complicated and more fascinating because uh, when, you, when you move the ice, when the ice moves and it melts and it goes into the ocean, you're also changing the mass distribution on Earth, which changes gravity. And so if you lose a chunk of ice from Greenland, uh, that means that there's less gravity pulling water towards Greenland. And in fact, sea level goes down near Greenland and goes up elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and it turns out that there's a small change in the rotation of the Earth as well, which also changes the shape of the geo. And you need to have all of those things calculated if you're going to be able to predict uh, what's going to happen to sea level in New York or in, or in, Johanna, or in South Africa or, 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 in, or in Shanghai. And, and each of those places has a different uh, fingerprint from where the ice is melting or where the terrestrial water storage is changing. Gavin, what lessons should we take away from the climate environment during the global pandemic? Okay, so uh, let me start off by saying that I'm not going to recommend a global pandemic in order to reduce emissions. The cost-benefit cost is, is a little bit skewed there. Um, nonetheless, uh, the restrictions that were put in place uh, did impact a lot of different emissions. So as, as you rightly say, you know, we... Uh, uh, in the U.S., we reduced uh, uh, carbon dioxide by, I think, about 10% in 2020 compared to the year before. Uh, globally, it was about a 7% decrease in carbon dioxide emissions, uh, mostly from changes in transportation. Uh, so people weren't driving as much, they weren't flying as much, um, and uh, and that had impacts on other things too. So so people not driving reduced the amount of nitrous oxides. So those are a, a precursor of smog. They're very bad uh, health-wise uh, in, in, in cities. Uh, mostly everywhere we saw reductions in ozone, um, not not so much in, in some of the most polluted parts, but uh, uh, but we saw big changes in uh, in these short-lived pollutants that we that we saw from space everywhere where there were big restrictions put in place. Uh, so there's, there's two lessons, I think, to, to take from that. Uh, one is that uh, just making people stay at home and not do anything uh, is not a good climate plan, right? That, that's, that's, uh, it's not sufficient. The systematic changes that need to be made in how power is generated uh, and how industry is run, uh, those are the big players. And, uh, and without tackling those you know, individual choices about you know, working from home or going into the city or taking a car or taking a bus or taking a bike, uh, all of those things are, are small comparatively. The second thing to learn from that, though, is that anything that we do that is going to reduce emissions is also going to affect these other things. Um, it's also going to affect air pollution. It's also going to affect smog. Uh, and there are things that we can design. There, there, are, there are policies that we can design that allow us to reduce emissions and clean up the air at the same time and reduce um, uh, you know, public health uh, problems associated with particulates or with ozone or with smog. Um, uh, and so these things are connected. Uh, and, I, and, and I think the, you know, one of the most important lessons from, uh, from the COVID pandemic uh, has been those connections are very, very clear, uh, and we need to be able to build those into um, our, um, uh, our plans going forward. So in terms of being a good steward of this planet, are there things that individuals could do that would help out? It's important to remember that even though you're an individual, you wear many hats. You know, you're, you're an individual consumer. 
you're a commuter, uh, you can uh, you can work from home or take a bike or take public transport rather than driving a car. Um, you can swap out your car uh, for an electric vehicle. You can uh, be a citizen. You know, you're you can be a parent. You can be a member of a faith community, and through those communities, uh, you can influence decisions that are being made at a higher scale. Right, you can influence the uh, the insulation that that's that's being put into the school or your new building. You can influence uh, where your town buys its energy. You can influence um, uh, the politicians that are making decisions about utility choices. You can influence uh, you know the, the the readers of your local newspaper. Uh, you can influence the people at your local town halls. Uh, you have a lot of different roles. Uh, that are there that can amplify your values and your choices uh, such that they can impact uh, bigger and bigger and bigger decisions. Yeah, so everyone can play a role and an important one at that. Yeah. Well, you know, Gavin, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today. I call that event a gravity assist. So Gavin, what was your gravity assist? So back when I was a, a postdoc, uh, I was working at McGill University in Montreal. And um, uh, Montreal, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, is, is bilingual, right? So there's, there's an English population, there's a French-speaking population. Um, uh, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to, to, to speak a little bit of French. And so I, I was able to kind of, you know, go between the two. Um, and, uh, and I remember, you know, pretty early on, uh, when I was there, uh, I was giving a talk and it was a, it was a French language scientific conference. And I was giving a talk on, um, the Cretaceous, um, and, uh, what, uh, and how, how the climate of the Cretaceous, uh, might've been. And immediately after I gave my talk, this, 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 uh, this journalist came up to me and, um, and he said, uh, Oh, you know, I'm I'm from Radio Canada, which is the French the French network there, and he says my audience is is, is absolutely fascinated by by the Cretaceous, you know, because you know the, the, there were dinosaurs and everybody loves dinosaurs, and uh, and he said, uh, you know, I just you know, can you tell me something about the Cretaceous? And so he, you know, the camera starts rolling, and this is all in French, and the guy the guy says, um, um, what what was, he says to me, you know, comment était le, le Cretaceous? So what, what was it like the Cretaceous? And I said, sure hot. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, how hot? And I said, très chaud. <laughs> very hot. And he said, thank you very much. <laughs> Boom. And, and, that, and that was it. And I was going, okay, well, that was, that was, that was interesting. Um, and, 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 you know, and I, I, I bring that up because, you know, what, what's kind of pushed me to be kind of where I am has, has been a kind of innate desire to help people out, to explain stuff to folks. Um, and, and one of the things that I realized at that moment was that even if I don't know everything, I still know a lot more than a lot of other people. And that's kind of yeah, the, the, the need to know a lot about, the need to know a lot of, about a lot of things and to see how they fit together. Uh, and then be able to explain what's going on in the ocean to the people that care about the clouds or what's going on in the radiation to the people that care about paleoclimate or explain to somebody that cares about the dinosaurs how climate change uh, you know, impacts 
uh, or impacted uh, or impacted them. You can be that translator. You can be that conduit of interesting information. I, uh, you know, that was that was when I kind of realized that 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 was something that could be done, um, and that uh, and that I could do it. What's pushed me into climate change has been uh, both that kind of evolution of of my thinking about what science is for, but also this massive interest that the the public and uh, and other people have about climate change. Well, I got to tell you, you really upped your game since that last interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a craft. Yes, All right, that's right. It, and, and, and indeed, it uh, it takes uh, a lot of practice and a lot of exposure. And, and it's hard for scientists to talk about, you know, some of these esoteric subjects. So, Gavin, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. <laughs>